it's a huge opportunity to intervene um, both early on in someone's condition, but also intervene to reduce the impact um, of their condition if they're, if they're engaged and willing and able, of course. Our guest this week on what it's like working in primary care. Welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. Uh, so my name is Ren Lawler. I'm um, an advanced nurse practitioner, um, very much a generalist, but I do have a special interest and a historical interest in respiratory care. I work in southeast London. Um, back in the day, it was kind of A&E, high dependency, medical admissions, that sort of thing, and then moved into primary care where I did my master's in prescribing about sort of 13 years ago. Um, up until last year, I was a permanent uh, senior lecturer at the University of Greenwich, um, now visiting lecturer there because I took a post as the academic tutor for the South East London Training Hub, um, which I do three days a week. The other couple of days I'm clinical. Um, and I'm the vice chair for the executive committee at the Primary Care Respiratory Society and I'm the education committee lead for them as well. I also do some work um, in an advisory capacity for the International Primary Care Respiratory Group. Um, as well so kind of lots of lots of little things uh, to fill my time lots of little things lots of them <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um and so i suppose uh, just sort of going through your career you started in secondary care um as mm. sort of a sort of a general nurse in a and e and then as i say hdu that's quite different for your job yep. now isn't it it's very different. Um, I, I was a, a, a classically a little bit um, of an arrogant secondary care nurse, as, as we can be, uh, in the respect no that I thought, that I, don't comment, yeah, <laughs> is that I thought that's where everything happened. That's what, that's where I wanted to be, you know, at the, on the front line and forefront of everything. Hmm. Um, and then I got a little bit of a culture shock, to be honest. I moved into practice nursing. Um for lots of reasons, part part was uh, kind of lifestyle and, and, and other sort of things. And I, I felt that I went from having quite a good level of expertise to being quite a novice, actually, mm. in a way. Um, you know, working in primary care is very autonomous. Um, you know, you, you're you very much you and the patient. There's not, there's not this huge team around you. I mean, certainly you have people within the practice, but day to day, it's kind of you and you and that individual patient. Um, and I, what I enjoyed as well was the kind of um, the longevity. Um, so seeing that person over and over again, um, as opposed to sort of patching them up and moving them on. Um, so I kind of really found my my sort of place there, which is why I did my my MSc then in advanced practice and prescribing and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't go back now. I don't think. And how did you get specifically having sort of a special interest in respiratory care and sort of a primary care setting? How did that sort of come about? So I worked with a GP called uh, Noel Baxter, who uh, is very well known uh, sort of in the respiratory field. And at the time, he was what was known as then as a, as a gypsy. So a GP with special interest. Mm. Um, and he got involved in the Primary Care Respiratory Society. Um, and within the practice that I worked in, we already had um, a nurse who was interested in diabetes. And so whether I wanted to or not, there was a little bit of a kind of we need someone who's interested in asthma and COPD. You're the other nurse. Let's do that. Mm. Um, so it wasn't so much a choice as a kind of, you know, what happens in in primary care really is that someone needs to take the lead. Um, but actually, for me, 
um, being an asthmatic myself, um, it did interest me in that respect. Um, I didn't know much about COPD. I had a very secondary care um, perception of COPD. So, you know, those very breathless patients that are constantly frequent sort of um, admissions and things like that, exacerbations, often quite sort of advanced um, at that point. So didn't really see patients in those early stages because obviously by the time they were having hospital admissions and things they were quite unwell Mm. so to be in primary care and sort of see these patients who were symptomatic but undiagnosed uh was quite interesting um actually and and that's when I started to become more and more interested in in sort of early diagnosis and case screening and you know early intervention and all of those kind of things yeah yeah yeah. and then you said also your role now is it within sort of teaching and tutoring as well is Mm. that within sort of advanced nursing or yes and no so um so a lot of the teaching that i do for the southeast london training hub is is southeast wide so that can be gps nurses pharmacists physios paramedics uh you know whoever uh, wants to, to come on board really at the university, it was very much sort of leading on advanced practice. Uh, so it was more the post-grad sort of stuff. Um, but the teaching I do now kind of has to be across the board a little bit because there's such varying levels of understanding, expertise. Um, I did an asthma study day yesterday um, and some of the people were very, very new to asthma. Some of them had been doing, you know, reviews routinely for quite some time. Others had done like a small sort of diploma in in asthma you know five years ago uh, and things like that so from a teaching perspective it, it really does kind of depend on your audience is, is what I would say. Mostly the audience of this podcast is medical students uh, and, mm. and junior doctors but if you were a nurse listening now what what would your advice be in terms of um, different careers as a nurse within the NHS in terms of advanced practice what would your advice be to mm. them? So, I mean, there's a huge drive towards advanced practice. And actually, it's now sort of uh, the ACPs now, so it's advanced clinical practice. So it's very much kind of allied health professionals. You've got pharmacists, you've got paramedics, uh, physios, uh, nurses as well. Um, and it's, it's quite sort of broad. Um, and I think my advice would be don't rush it. So I think there's a real tendency at the moment to kind of qualify work in clinical practice for two years and then start to kind of think okay I could be a bit more advanced but actually I think that we underestimate what experience brings in terms of time and exposure and and those kind of things traditionally from a nurse perspective now anyway um traditionally there's been this kind of well you really should work in hospital for at least five years to get some experience um but actually I think that's starting to change now because there's quite a lot of people who don't want to work in hospital actually and they want to work in the community they want to work outside of hospitals um and i think the opportunity needs to be for those individuals to do that you mm. know straight from from qualifying yep. um as opposed to sort of spending time in an environment they don't really want to be in was mm-hmm. um, saying previously but i've i've had a i've done an f2 job in uh, in primary care and and mm. lots and that's it must be something like 90% of asthma management is, was done at the practice I was at by the the practice nurse there who sort of yeah. the, the um, asthma nurse there. And you know, quite a lot of it isn't done by the GPs at all. It's almost all, all mm. done by the nurses. Um, so maybe we should talk about, we'll just go through, we'll talk about the, the diagnosis, how, how people end up on your on your list of suspected asthma uh, and sort yep. of what, what yes. you do when we when when you suspect asthma in, in a primary care setting. Mm. 
So, I mean, so the, the interesting thing is that, you know, with any kind of respiratory um, diagnosis or query, the vast majority of them present as the same symptoms. So that's one of the difficulties is that people will present either with cough or shortness of breath or, or something along those lines, or they don't present with it at all. They present with a different problem um, that you start thinking, actually, I think this is probably more a, a respiratory thing than anything else. So the clinical history is the most important thing, to be honest with you. Um, and something like asthma, you want to look for patterns. So the history is going to give you far more information uh, than your spirometry and, and those kind of things. So you want in the first instance as they come in, you, you want to be thinking about those four things. So cough, wheeze, chest tightness, shortness of breath. Um, for the vast majority of asthmatics, they will have one or more than one of those. One of the things that I find really interesting is if you look at guidelines, they often focus in on, you know, not being able to, to, to complete a full sentence, for example, or they'll talk about, you know, an audible wheeze at all times. Um, and I would say to, to clinicians who are working with these patients is to just be a little bit flexible with that and look for behaviours as much as anything else. Certainly in sort of your younger generations, what you'll see is they'll easily complete a sentence and that's because they talk very fast. You know, they've got lots to say, your teenagers and things like that. Mm. But if you watch them at the end of the sentence, you'll see this where they go at the end. So there's a big draw in of breath at the end. So, yes, they can complete their sentences but there's an abnormality in the mechanism of breathing. And that's the sort of thing that, that that is very subtle, but that you can pick up and that, you know, that kind of makes you think a little bit. The other thing is, is that not every asthmatic will necessarily wheeze all the time. So they may well have dry cough. They may well have a cough that's worse at night or first thing in the morning. They may get a little bit um, breathless on usually on exertion or following a trigger. Um, but actually if it's relatively mild, they may not be aware of a, a wheeze. And actually, when you see them, if they're asymptomatic, their chest might be clear. So if we look very specifically at what the guidelines will tell you to look for, if you're not flexible around that, you can get a little bit caught up. Other things too, uh, the guidelines differ um, slightly as well. So if you look at NICE guidance and bearing in mind now, um, you know, there is a collaborative um, uh, piece of work between BTS sign and NICE ongoing at the moment that we think may come out in around May this year, but we're still waiting. So this may change. Um, but if you look at sort of a BTS sign, they'll still talk about putting someone in a, a probability of asthma uh, group. So if someone's got a high probability of asthma, so they've got strong family history, um, they're an allergic person, they've got recurrent uh, intermittent variable sort of symptoms, um, all of those kind of things that make you kind of go, yeah, this is this has got to be asthma. You know, their advice would be to trial a treatment. If it's a low probability, they'll say, think of something else. If it's an intermediate probability, these are the kind of investigations you could do. So that might be post-bronchodilator spirometry. It could be pheno, for example. It could be a peak flow diary. If you look at NICE, NICE is far more structured in what it, in what its expectations are. And it relies quite heavily on pheno readings in terms of whether or not you should then move on to peak flow, whether or not you should think about um, a differential diagnosis. And of course, what we know at the moment is that pheno is, is not brilliantly accessible within a lot of practices in primary care. So I think the other thing to bear in mind is to think about the history taking as, as, as being your first and foremost, 
um, and getting all those clues uh, in terms of probability and then looking at, at the investigations that you have available to you. Spirometry is another one that obviously with COVID and everything is, is kind of uh, not been done for the last couple of years and there's a lot of practices now who've lost the confidence um, to do it and would want to be updated so waiting lists for for pulmonary function and things in secondary care are, are, are quite high so you need to think of what's your other options. You have to rely on your uh, clinical diagnosis a bit more. Clinical diagnosis and peak flow, peak flow every day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would the main differentials be for asthma? What are the things that you sort of m- might be caught out as quite often mm. yeah working in the emergency departments I do currently, you think, oh, you probably have asthma, you know, see your yeah. GP, et cetera, et cetera. But what are those things where, yeah, you get caught out and actually it ends up being something completely different? Yeah. So it depends very much on, on, on the age. Um, so obviously, you know, if you're, if you're seeing you sort of under fives and things like that, we need to think about preschool wheeze, we need to think about viral wheeze um, and those kind of things. And again, what you want to be thinking about is when do these symptoms happen in that age group? Uh, if these symptoms are only ever happening when they are unwell and in between they're perfectly fine and there's no family history, they're not atopic, there's no eczema, there's no sort of hay fever, there's no food allergy, all of those kind of things that would suggest to you a hypersensitivity in this child, um, then obviously you may lean a little bit more towards that sort of post, uh, that, that kind of viral induced wheeze. As you get a little bit older, um, then you would want to start thinking more along the patterns um, of that 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 sort of uh, symptom. Once we're moving into sort of adults, you need to start thinking about those other kind of conditions. So certainly if there's a smoking history, if there's a history of substance uh, use, or if they're sort of cannabis smokers, shisha, crack cocaine, you know, heroin smoking, all of those kind of things are going to increase the risk of COPD. And we're actually sort of diagnosing uh, sort of moderate uh, to severe COPD, certainly in Southeast London, um, in people who are less than 35. So traditionally, we've kind of looked at if they're over 45, let's think about COPD. And we haven't brought that age down. But actually, depending on their level of risk, we may need to consider that as 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 an alternative. Other sort of things, if we step away from respiratory, obviously in your older ones, if we're predominantly looking at breathlessness and things, think heart failure, uh, think gastrointestinal. So if it's predominantly cough, is there an acid reflux, um, obesity in terms of breathlessness, uh, you know, and then the respiratory ones, you know, we do need to think about COPD. We need to think about infection um, and those kind of things um, as well. But the history for, for asthma there's an awful lot of clues in the history that would lead you to think it's more likely asthma over something else. Um, and I can't kind of uh, go on about that enough, really, but it really is about sort of getting a really good history, but asking those pertinent questions, not just following your traditional medical model, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then sort of, we've sort of alluded to the management of asthma uh, already. And I think you were saying before when we were talking that lots of, the, you know, up to like 90% of asthma management is all done in primary care. It's only if all those things have been exhausted or they've, you know, had recurrent mm. admissions to secondary care that they start sort of getting involved. Um, and I think, you know, it's kind of maybe easy for me to say, oh, you know, it's just a stepwise ladder thing where we go up the management and just mm. add in and things. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm sensing it's probably slightly more complicated than that, is it, than sort of following an algorithm. Um, a little bit. <laughs> and I, the nice thing, yeah. though, 
the nice thing is, is that we do have different guidelines. So you have options. So, I mean, I think the, the first thing that I would want to say, and, and this is really important, is that we need to step away from blue inhalers in asthma in particular. There is reams and reams of evidence, even as far back as the 90s, uh, to suggest that, that, that blue inhalers are not a first line treatment and certainly shouldn't be a treatment in isolation. Overuse of salbutamol is incredibly dangerous in terms of increased risk of exacerbation, hospital admission and fatality. Um, and the problem is, is that if you look historically, blue inhalers, bronchodilators uh, were traditionally used as a first line treatment because it was believed that asthma was a bronchoconstriction uh, condition disorder. And we know that's not now true. Yes, you do get constriction of smooth muscle lining the airways, but this is often secondary to irritation and inflammation of the lining of the airways. And most likely for most people, that's allergen um, um, sort of based. So. The problem with um, this focusing on sort of blue inhalers and certainly from a diagnostic point of view, if that's the first thing that you're providing someone, you're kind of giving them that learning pathway that this is the inhaler that you need. Um, and actually what we're doing is increasing uh, uh, their risk quite considerably. Every single guideline we have now in terms of NICE, BTS sign, genus, so the global initiative for, for asthma, all have the um, all agree that nobody should be on a short-acting bronchodilator in isolation unless they have very infrequent and very short-lived wheeze. Gina has actually gone even further now. So the Global Initiative in 2022, so last year, has gone further to, to sort of say we should, almost shouldn't be using them at all in a way. Um, and that what we, what we should have is uh, people who don't necessarily want to be or need a regular inhaled corticosteroid actually have a combination um, inhaler of inhaled corticosteroid and formoterol, which is a, a long acting but fast acting bronchodilator, and that they use that PRN um, instead. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence for it as being quite, you know, sort of efficient. Now, whether NICE and BTS are going to follow on uh, with that uh, in their latest guidance, I I don't know for sure. I think they might do. We've already got the MART uh, regimes and things like that that seem to work very good, uh, very well for people. But I think, you know, utilising blue inhalers in isolation, when you look at the evidence for, you know, decreased bronchial receptiveness and uh, increased hypersensitivity, those sort of twitchy airways, um, is really important. So using salbutamol in itself increases increases what pathophysiologically increases the risk of an exacerbation of asthma no well so so what it does if you've got someone who is consistently overusing salbutamol or using salbutamol frequently without using an inhaled corticosteroid to reduce inflammation then the risk is what you get is a, a sort of bronchodilator induced hypersensitivity in the airways so they actually start to become twitchy. So you almost become more symptomatic. The problem with that is that you get a decreased sensitivity to salbutamol. So when you are using it, it's less likely to work as well as it does. The second thing about it is you're not doing anything for the inflammation in the airways. And what we're seeing now and what we've seen for some time is that you can get airway remodeling from chronic inflammation. So at a later date, if this happens very young, people in their teens or 20s or 30s, by the time they're in their 40s, 50s, you can actually see a fixed airway obstruction, say on spirometry, so non-reversible obstruction 
secondary to this chronic inflammation in the airways and that's for, for poorly managed and undermanaged asthma yeah so th- i mean that's that's really i didn't know that and so I, uh, the mm. importance of managing that early on like you say i suppose when you're using salbutamol you're just sort of treating a symptom essentially rather than yeah treating any you know most of the underlying yeah. disease process there's there's, there's no yeah. curative factor to it yeah. you're, you're just making someone feel a bit better <laughs> Apart from an emergency, <laughs> yeah, emergency yeah, yeah, office, yeah. Please crack on and use it. Yeah, of course, but yeah, yeah, and um, things like Monte Lucast as well, which mm. are, is now you know has been for for a while. I've, when I was in primary care, I saw some patients who who had sort of quite bad side effects from that. Is that something you see frequently with with those? Yeah, so I mean, Monte Lucast we used to use predominantly in paediatrics. Used to. Um, and then the latest or the, the most recent NICE guidance looked at the, the sort of efficacy of Montelukast as a second line in comparison to a long acting uh, bronchodilator. So because the guidance now across the board is to keep people on the lowest dose of inhaled corticosteroid. Now what we do is we add in before we increase the ICS. OK, so what NICE looked at was that the efficacy of Montelukast was Slightly inferior to long acting, but it was more cost effective. But also in your atopic patients, so those who have rhinitis, for example, which we know if it that's not managed, that can cause an impact on overall asthma management. So for those who've got rhinitis, they may get some benefit from the uh, Montelukast to their rhinitis as well. So you kind of kill two birds with one stone sort of thing. The problem is, is that Montelukast is very well known for um, causing things like very vivid dreams and and sleep disturbance and things like that. For those patients who experience that with Montelukast, you can then treat them as per BTS sign. And this is kind of the nice thing about having two guidelines is if one doesn't work, you can kind of use the other one. So as such, if the Montelukast isn't working, then you've got the option of of trialing them on a, a combination inhaler of ICS and uh, long acting uh, bronchodilator instead. Um, and the other interesting thing, um, we didn't necessarily talk about differentials, but things like um, we talked about, I suppose, an allergy, things like aspergillosis mm. and things that can occur alongside asthma. What sort of things yeah. in 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 patients' history would would indicate to you that that may be something we need to sort of look into a bit more? Yeah, so so people with your your kind of standard asthma, as it were, will respond to treatment. That's one of the most key things. So when you do a trial of treatment, whether that's with an inhaled corticosteroid inhaler, whether you decide or they opt to have two weeks of oral pred just to try and reverse everything, they will respond and become asymptomatic. Now, on what level depends on how much, uh, what potency of that ICS they need. So, you know, if their symptoms are disproportionate, um, in terms of what you would expect for the level of treatment they're on, then you need to think of either something that's running alongside it or that perhaps you've got the wrong diagnosis completely. Um, oh, so the other thing as well is um, mucus. Think mucus, um, which I know people don't like to think about, but certainly if you've got um, excessive amounts of mucus that's unexpected, that's not usual in asthma. So quite often um, you should see um you know, maybe flex of sputum, they might have small amounts of, of sputum, particularly if they've used a bronchodilator when they cough just because things have loosened a little bit, but it shouldn't be copious amounts. So if they've got lots of sputum or they're complaining of lots of sputum, one, you can think infection, but also bronchiectasis. So bronchiectasis is often another thing that kind of gets missed a little bit or misdiagnosed or is a bit of a late diagnosis. So 
bit up there with sort of interstitial lung disease and COPD, really. So interesting. Thanks. I'm, <laughs> I'm learning so much. It's good. Um, I will move on to COPD now, if that's okay. Mm, um, yeah. We sort of talked half half for asthma, um, and you know, sort of uh, similar in many ways to asthma, but you know, completely different in others, and obviously a comp- often a completely different cohort of patients. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, you know, way more comorbid. Um, all your things, concurrent illnesses like heart failure, are going quite often alongside yeah. it. Uh, I imagine, I imagine more difficult to manage because of that. Or yeah, where do you start, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so the, the the key with COPD, the absolute key is early diagnosis and early intervention. That's what we want to be aiming for. Now the difficulty is when you see them in A and E, we see them in secondary care quite often. They're quite well established, but they may not have been diagnosed. So that's quite key. You often have patients with COPD who actually are diagnosed in the emergency department. Um, at a presentation of a, of a flare-up. But the problem is, is that then we sometimes lose them a little bit on their migration back to, to, to primary care. So they can end up with this diagnosis of COPD without having actually had the supportive discussion, um, the confirming sort of investigations and things like that. So that's one sort of issue with it is that late diagnosis. So so primary care very much needs to to, to kind of take a more active uh, sort of process and screening and the way to do that is to, to sort of look at the patients that you're already seeing so you know if you have patients who are known to have sort of chronic inflammation for example your diabetics um, your smokers uh, those kind of that, that group they're going to be a higher risk um, and therefore doing a, you know a quick micro spirometer feb one might suggest to you actually this person might need um, some you know some intervention Back in the day, when I first started, there was this kind of uh, approach of looking at all of the people on the um, uh, on the record who smoked and just inviting all of them in for spirometry, which is insane. From a case finding point of view, it, you're not going to find them. Uh, you need to be looking at, say, people who have been given a blue inhaler in the last year or whatever that don't have a respiratory diagnosis. You may have patients who have had to have oral prednisolone. Um, for a chest infection because the infection wasn't resolving, also unusual. So it's more a kind of case finding in in that respect, really, looking at the patients that you've already got and thinking, okay, they've got one long-term condition, where's the other one? And where do you start in terms of COPD management? Because quite often... uh... In fact, you know, even last night saw a patient with with COPD who you know finished their rescue pack and uh, had still got ongoing symptoms and was you know still quite breathless. And yeah. you know, so often they just go from rescue pack to rescue pack to rescue pack, and they get a bit better yeah. and then get worse again. And that's what I find with COPD, which is really difficult to manage. Was like, well, yeah, you know, where do you, where do you go from there? You can increase their overall inhalers and things, but you know, they still end up getting recurrent infections. And I suppose, you know, yeah, that, you know, maybe they've had a HRCT, they don't have bronchiectasis, they still get recurrent infections. And you think, you know, yeah. you're just not winning with these patients. I think, I think. The harsh reality of it is that we have to remember that COPD is a degenerative condition Um, and we have to think it from a systemic point of view. So we're we're quite good at kind of thinking COPD and thinking lungs and airways and things like that. But one of the things that we have uh, a constant sort of battle against with COPD is that chronic systemic inflammation. So that has an effect on obviously cardiovascular system. 
system is going to have an effect potentially on iron deficiency anemia. So now they're not making red blood cells. They're already hypoxic. Um, so these are the so that's going to cause shortness of breath as well. So there's, you know, to, to, it's a case of not just thinking, OK, what inhalers can I give? Because actually inhalers aren't going to be a curative. There is a controllability with them, perhaps. But that's about as far as you can go. The other thing that we do um, is, you know, with rescue packs and things is you, we, we in a weird way, we kind of give patients that that sort of information that if you take this, you're going to feel better. Um, and actually, we need to start the conversations much earlier about deterioration of condition, um, advanced care planning, um, end of life sort of planning and things like that. Um, and when they're very unwell, getting them to understand, you know, what is now a good day? So for your asthmatic, say if we were talking about management plans going forward with the management of their condition, with an asthmatic, you want them to be asymptomatic. Absolutely. Um, because because we can control those symptoms, you know, unless they're severe or brittle, that gets a bit more difficult. But your mild to moderates, their good day should be I have no symptoms for your patients with COPD. And that could be your chronic you know, bronchitis or your emphysematous patients, depending because um, they'll present differently unless they're very unlucky and they've got both. Um, but what you want to be thinking about with them is, OK, on my best day, my symptoms are this because they're not going to be asymptomatic when they get to a certain point where they're having frequent exacerbations. And the reason that's important is because if they are still under the impression that when they're well, they don't have symptoms, then we're doing them a disservice because they are going to present when they're breathless and things like that. The key with them then is not to be fixated on these antibiotics and steroids. Yes, they need them when they're exacerbating, but is to actually look at, okay, how can we prevent or reduce the frequency of these exacerbations? And that is your smoking cessation, it's your pulmonary rehabilitation, it's your vaccination, it's all of those lifestyle things, it's getting the weight off if they're uh, obese, putting the weight on if they're, you know, underweight, cachexic, um, and things like that. And then also maximizing optimum treatment for their comorbid conditions not missing lung cancer because they're breathless, not missing heart failure or not treating it optimally mm. um, and those sort of things as well. That's, Different so, approach. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's just managing uh, a comorbid patient as opposed to managing yeah. a condition, isn't it? It's completely... Completely yeah. different. On the lung cancer thing, I mean, obviously mm. these, these patients quite often get serial x-rays and quite often have quite a few CTs behind them as yeah. well. I mean, what, you know, patients, they will get breathless. What sort of things in the history makes you think, uh, I'm a bit worried here or, you know, maybe we need, to, yeah. I assume that the next step to looking for that would be organising a CT quickly yeah. or going, going via a two-week wait. But what sort of things in the yeah. history would make you a bit, a bit more worried? So I think uh, the sort of things that we would think about is obviously a, a rapid deterioration in symptoms. Um, a lot of uh, patients, obviously, as you know, with with long term conditions will have some level of chronic pain. Um, so the, the, the sort of things I would think about from a primary care, so even at an annual review, I'll ask about um, worsening symptoms. So there are tools that we can use. COPD assessment tool is very good because it gets patients to... Um, think a little bit more about more than their breathlessness. So are they tired all the time? Um, any hemoptysis, obviously, is going to be a red flag. That weight loss, any mid-thoracic back pain, that's unusual. Lower back pain, yes. Neck pain, yes. Mid-thoracic back pain is odd. Um, so I would be concerned about that. 
um, obviously changes in in their sort of uh, weight uh, and things like that. And then looking at a full blood count. So, you know, full blood count, as you know, can tell you so much. Um, you know, rising platelets, for example, any kind of, um, you know, anemia and things that, that may be new or worsening um, over time. So they're the sort of things, the very subtle changes that we can look at in the first instance. Um, other things uh, that you may want to think about is certainly if you're from a physical assessment point of view, um, checking for lymph nodes, uh, those kind of things, those very, very subtle things that, that sort of change in these patients. The problem is, is that we become, and all of us do, so it's not you know me saying that I don't, I'm just as bad as everybody else, but when we know that somebody's got a condition and we know the symptoms they're having make sense with that condition, there's a risk of a complacency and saying, well, of course you're breathless, you've got COPD and you're still smoking. Do you see what I mean? Uh, of course, your weight has has gone down because you're too breathless to eat. Um, you know, and it's 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 that kind of thing that that is why these diagnoses get missed, or why they are eventually diagnosed in sort of stage three, stage four, where it's where it's too late. Mm. It's very easy to miss, isn't it? As like say, but I suppose, yeah. you know, yeah, one of those one of those things. We've got to stay vigilant. Yeah. Makes the job yeah. interesting. Um, it's looking for trends. I mean, yeah. certainly with, with your, your sort of blood results and things like that, your your FBC and your inflammatory markers are really helpful with that. But you need to look at trends. So the difficulty in sort of uh, emergency sort of care and things like that is that you just get what they what they are at that moment in time. You've got a patient in front of you with chronic inflammation, systemic disease and a chest infection. So so the abnormalities in their blood results make sense. What needs to happen then is that's communicated for follow-up in in primary care. Has that CRP come back to normal? What's the ESR doing? Are we still worried about an anemia? What's going on with the platelets? Where where are the white cells? Um, and seeing whether or not there's a there's a trend that is deteriorating, or whether or not this is something that you know we can kind of uh, uh, sort of pick up on something else with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll I'll ask one one more question if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Of course. You, I think it's clear um, that you really enjoy your job. You're like so passionate <laughs> about primary care and and about sort of respiratory. Um, I guess I'm going to assume your thing. You'd recommend to nurses thinking about primary care. You'd recommend or other clinicians. I would recommend it to to. I would recommend certainly that everybody gets an experience of it because it's a very very different way of working. Very different. Um, for me, I like the. I love the autonomy because uh, it pushes me to to stay up to date and learn more and and focus more on that and that kind of thing as well. Um, but I also think that it's a huge opportunity to intervene um, both early on in someone's condition, but also intervene to reduce the impact um, of their condition if they if they're engaged and willing and able, of course. Um, and you can go right the way through. You know, you go all the way through from you know. Um, diagnosis right through to sadly end of life sometimes and you you get to play a role in that um, and I think consistency of care in 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 a lot of these patient populations now is is absolutely paramount essential thank you so much it was so interesting to talk to you I've learned so You're much about asthma and COPD so yeah it's been brilliant <laughs> very good that's great This concludes our series on respiratory medicine and primary care, but in the next episode, we're talking to a pharmacist on the common drug issues in older people's medicine. 
Remember, you can follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you'd like to hear from next. As always, thanks to the producers of the podcast, Emma Harvey and Lewis Potter.